Let's now open our copies of God's Word to 1 John, John's first epistle. 1 John. Chapter 2, we will read together the first two verses. Let us pray together. O Lord, Creator and Redeemer, You are the one who spoke and the worlds came to be. You are the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. And now we ask that as you, by divine inspiration, have given to us your word that is without error in the whole and in the part, that you would help us to have humble and submissive attitudes as your people. And we pray for those among us who may not know you. And we pray that as in creation you said, let there be light and there was light, that this morning in some darkened soul you will speak the redemptive word of light, and that someone will be saved from sin for time and for eternity. These things we ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Stand with me for the reading of the word. 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses. This is the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Please be seated. From time to time, I particularly like to turn to this text on a communion Sunday. This text is so important for our understanding of the Christian life that Martin Luther said, this text should be written with golden letters and should be painted in the heart. Now, as we turn to this text, the first thing that I think we need to stress is this. This is first. Forgiven sinners are still sinners. Forgiven sinners are still sinners. Every believer in Jesus is completely forgiven, pardoned, justified, and accepted in God's court of law. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are justified by grace through faith, through the work of Christ alone. Now let's go together to the psychiatric ward. And there we have people with varying illnesses and diseases and Sometimes, because of sin, they are there. But there in the hospital, you will find some people that think they are something that they are not. One man thinks he is rich when he is not. Another man may think that he is the President of the United States when he is not. Another woman might think that she's the Queen of England when she certainly is not. Now, there are some people who think that this is what we mean by justification. It is simply, they say, a legal fiction that you preach. How can someone be just before God and at the same time still have a sinful heart? But it's no legal fiction. No, it is no legal fiction. Justification is just as real as when the judge in the court of law declares you to be not guilty. It is just as real as when money is transferred into your account from someone else's and you are richer because of it. We who trust in Christ are declared righteous in God's court of law. 
We are completely and utterly accepted. There is no condemnation now. There will be no condemnation in the future for those who truly, truly trust in Christ. Because the great exchange has taken place. The perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to the believer and the sins of sinners imputed to him. He died upon the cross so that his righteousness might be granted to us by grace. Forgiven sinners are still sinners in our hearts. That's why in chapter 1, notice with me verses 8 and following, John says, if we say, and he's addressing believers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And in the verse we just read in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And so believers in Christ are simultaneously just in God's court of law and yet still sinners in our hearts. And so you ask the question, if I am forgiven, why do I still confess my sins? In order to answer that question, we must distinguish two relations. God is condemnatory judge, which he was to us before faith in Christ, and God as our Father, which he is after faith in Christ through the redeeming work of Jesus. When you come to God by faith in Christ, God's wrath and condemnation have been removed by Jesus' blood. The wrath of God has once and forever been removed. We are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus, because his perfect record has been imputed to us, and we have received his righteous robe in exchange for our defiled robe, and this exchange is permanent. God is no longer a condemning judge to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is now our Father. Our relationship to God has changed. And so why do I, as a believer in Jesus, continue to confess my sins? Not because God will condemn me. Not because God does not receive me. But because you and I are sons and daughters who have sinned against our Heavenly Father. In Christ's righteousness I am perfect But in my heart, I am certainly not perfect. Though I have a new heart, it is not a new heart yet perfect. It will not be perfect until heaven. And there is nothing that can be added to my justification. In God's court of law, we are completely just. But our sanctification, my growth in grace, is ongoing. Justified sinners are simultaneously sinful within our hearts. We do not love it, we do not enjoy it, we do not habituate it, we do not sin without struggle. And so do you understand, this is so incredibly crucial, that in God's court of law, I am perfectly and legally righteous if I have trusted in Jesus. In my heart, I am morally imperfect, and we will not know moral perfection in this life And that is why you and I continue as Christians to confess our sins. Now that leads to the second thing as we move on in the text. 
justified sinners do not lose our Savior when we sin. We have an advocate, we are told. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he doesn't say, well, you've lost it all. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. It is a precious present tense. He is qualified to plead your case. He can stand for us in the Father's presence. And so, Christian, you sinned. How awful. We should hate it. Your conscience knows the heavy burden. There's still indwelling sin with which you struggle. But you do not lose your advocate. What has he done for you? Jesus Christ stood in your place as your substitute when he bore your sin upon the cross. Jesus Christ suffered the just for the unjust for your sins to bring you to God. Jesus Christ was also your substitute in that he obeyed the law that you and I have broken. Jesus also paid the penalty for your sins, and he did so once for all. God will never require of you that the debt be paid again. There is no such thing as double jeopardy in this great matter of our justification. But not only has he done that, but also he has ascended on high, and he sits on the right hand of God the Father. At God's right hand is your great high priest, And there the eternal efficacy, the eternal power of his once-for-all sacrifice for your sins is presented in heaven on your behalf. J.C. Ryle, Anglican of a bygone day, evangelical man, made the statement, There's something within a man when his conscience is really awake which whispers, I must have a priest for my soul or no peace. Well, Jesus Christ is the priest for your soul through whom you may have peace. Yes, we have an advocate with the Father. And so in no way should we minimize the significance and seriousness of sin. Indeed, understanding that we have a great high priest helps us to understand more deeply how serious sin is and what it has taken to pay the price. But you will say, my sin is great. Yes, your sin is great. Every sin is great, for it is a sin against the infinite holiness of God. Yes, your sin is great, but your advocate is greater than your sin. The blood of Christ to cleanse you is greater than your sin. The heavenly intercessory work of Jesus Christ is greater than your sin. Your justification lasts. No one and nothing can take it from you. And, and... For your continuing moral struggle with moral defilement in your heart, the blood of Jesus pleads for you, for your ongoing sanctification as the blood continues to be applied. The application of the cross is applied to your heart and to your life and to your growth in grace. Which leads us to the third thing we want to see as we move on in the text. God's provision for justified sinners. God's provision for justified sinners who still sin. And in order to understand this marvelous thing that has been done for us, this almost incomprehensible thing that has been done for us in Christ, the text provides two images. The first image is that of a 
courtroom. A courtroom. And we see that in that our Savior is called our righteous advocate, our advocate with the Father. You will never experience condemnation in God's court of law if Christ is your advocate. The word there, parakleton, means one who pleads another's case. Literally, he is toward the Father pleading the case of his people. The Son's advocacy means the presentation of the eternal worth of what he accomplished on the cross. The eternal worth of what he did for us in his once-for-all sacrifice And this is the Father's own loving plan for His elect. The just one in love provided your Redeemer who justifies you. He fulfilled the righteousness that God's righteousness required Him to require if you were to be right before Him. And so when we think of Jesus Christ standing before the Father, the eternal efficacy of the power of the cross that continues to plead for us, even when we fail and even when we fall and even when we sin, we should not think of that advocacy as meaning that the Son is somehow twisting the Father's arm behind His back as if He's reluctant to pardon us. No, the Son is our advocate, is the Father's loving provision For us when we sin. And when the text says we have an advocate with the Father, this means that the once for all sacrifice on the cross for you continues to avail. It avails for you now and it will avail for you forever because your advocate, your high priest, is in heaven for you. So that every believer, everyone here who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ can say and sing from his heart, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And you can say, That not only is my sin dealt with in justification, but I continue to know the pardoning voice of my Father against whom I sin. I can't think of anything more marvelous than coming to a text like this as a saved sinner whose heart hurts and aches because I still sin against my Father. And to hear that I have an advocate with the Father whose blood avails for me, whose blood avails for you. And there is only one intercessor. So why attempt to come up with your own? Mary, sacrificing priests, works of your own. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, as we see in this text. So that's the first image, the image of the courtroom. The first image to describe the beauty of all of this for the believer. But now there's a second image that is brought into the picture, and that is the image of a temple. And we see that because of the word propitiation in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The term propitiation should bring to mind the temple with its sacrificial system. It's a temple image. 
Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who has satisfied the divine wrath that was against me. The divine wrath that I deserved to come upon me so that I might pay the price forever and ever and ever and ever. That wrath has fallen upon Jesus Christ who now is my advocate with the Father. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so your case is in the hands of the one who has already satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. You know, in Hebrews 9 through 10, we find the writer of Hebrews expanding on this in such wonderful ways as it speaks of Jesus our high priest who has passed through the heavenly court to the holy of holies where God is present, not once per year, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, not for his own sins because he had none, but for others. A spotless sacrifice who offered himself once for all at the end of the ages, now seated at God's right hand where his blood continues to purify in heaven. And wonderfully, we have access to the Father because of this. And the culmination of that description in the book of Hebrews is in chapter 10, 19 and following, where we are told, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so, believer in Jesus, Christ, by his advocacy, presents the merit of his blood, answers every indictment and accusation against you, And assures us the application of his blood is for our eternal acquittal. The law of God that came against me in all of its perfection has been satisfied in the work of my advocate. And so our advocate is turned toward the Father, answering to our need. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Since he is our propitiation, it is as if he says, what I have done once for all, right now for you, right now, avails in the heavenly court and avails in the temple forever. Now, some of you... Some of you men on Fridays with Pastor McDonald have just read about Anselm. I have a quotation from this great medieval theologian for you. He says this to sick believers who may be near death. He says, do you believe that thou canst not be saved but by the death of Christ? Go then, and while thy soul abideth in thee, put all thy confidence in this death alone. Place thy trust in no other thing. Connect thyself wholly with his death. Cast thyself wholly on this death. Wrap thyself wholly in this death. And if God would judge thee, say, Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and thy judgment. Otherwise, I will not contend or enter into the judgment with thee. 
And if he shall say unto thee that thou art a sinner, say unto him, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and my sins. If he shall say unto thee that thou hast deserved damnation, say, Lord, I put the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between thee and all my sins. I offer his merits for my own that I should have but have not. And if he say he is angry with thee, say, Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and thy anger. Now that medieval theologian was a good Protestant. Because that is good, biblical, justifying righteousness that he is preaching. Now, of course, the Lord will never accuse one of his children. Never. But when the believer looks death and judgment and sin in the face, we may feel accused by the inflexible law of God. The Lord in love has sent his own son to die for the sins of his people. And each believer finds hope and consolation and certainty and confidence In the merit of Christ alone, plus nothing, and plus no one else. That's what Anselm understood, if almost instinctively. Now, what does all of this mean for saints who sin? Are you a saint who sins? Yes? What does it mean for you? Well, it means many things. First of all, it should mean that the sight of our sin as we grow in grace should become more and more ugly to me so that I want to believe and repent and confess. It should be more and more ugly to my sight as I move on in my growth in grace. Is that true of you? Is sin more and more ugly to you or is it attractive to you? Thomas Watson the Puritan said, The sight of Caesar's bloody robe incensed the Romans against them that slew him The sight of Christ's bleeding body should incense us against sin. Let us not parley with it. Let that not be our joy, which made Christ a man of sorrow. So sin is awful. But the door of mercy is open to every believer in Christ. And when you sin, believe, repent, and immerse your conscience in the blood of Jesus. Depend upon his advocacy. Accept the promise of this text. My little children, I write these things to you that you sin not, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's his word of promise. Do you believe it? Do you receive it? Do you live upon it? And when he says to us it's for the whole world, this does not mean universal redemption. Our righteous advocate has never lost a case after all. It means this, that not only those who are reading John's little epistle, but the redeemed in every place, in every period for whom Christ propitiated the wrath of God, whether he be Jew or Gentile, no matter your race, no matter your background, Every people of every period, of every climate, of every geography, no matter how great your sin, this lawkeeper has never lost case. And so for you, believer, Christ presents the merit of his blood. Imagine he came and he bore the wrath of God. He has entered into the heavenly court and temple, and there he presents before the Father the merit, the infinite merit of his blood. 
Christ answers every indictment. He answers every accusation of the devil against your heart. Christ's sacrifice calls for acquittal. The law is satisfied, and the message of the text is rest in that, find peace in that. Because there is peace only here, nowhere else. Mingle some other mediator, mingle your own works, mingle what you think to be your own righteousness. There's no peace. Peace is found only in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me bring this to a conclusion with several observations. First, I want to speak to those here who are lost and don't know the Lord. Yes, I'm preaching to Christians. We're talking this morning, this text is addressing believers who have sinned. What do you do with you sin when you sin? You confess. You believe the word of promise. You accept what is promised us in this text, that we have an advocate with the Father. But my lost friend, one sin deserves God's infinite displeasure. And his atonement, what he did on the cross, is sufficient Way back in 1618 and 1619, there was a great convocation of churches at a place called Dortrecht in the Netherlands. And they wrote a confession of faith that was called the Canons of Dort. And in those wonderful words about the work of Christ in that confession, it is said that the work of Christ's cross is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. And the promise that we are to publish... And to preach without distinction to all is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now those are good words, right really from the Bible. And no sinner then, no sinner who has ever come to this Savior has ever been turned away. No sinner then, hear this, no sinner and no sin is out of reach for one whose atonement is infinitely valuable. No sin and no sinner is out of reach. You say, my sin exceeds what other Christians that I know have done. I have really sinned against the Lord. I have sinned treacherously. I have sinned deeply. I have sinned awfully. You are not out of reach of the blood of Jesus Christ, the propitiator and the advocate before the Father. That's the good news of this text. And if you're an unbeliever, you are not out of reach. What is true of the believer here is true of the unbeliever. You are not out of reach. The gospel meets the needs of sinners because the work of Jesus on his cross is altogether sufficient for your need. And maybe this sermon finds you in a state of sin and the Holy Spirit is passing you into the state of grace. And to be in the state of grace is the only way eventually to pass over into the state of glory. May he do it. But then also, as we say to the unbeliever, there is only one sufficient Savior. How often do we Christians need to learn how to say to ourselves, Christ is my advocate. There is only one who is sufficient for me with my sinful heart. And the sinner is called on the basis of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement and the backslider also is recalled on the same basis. What other basis could there be but the shed blood of Jesus on the cross? J.C. Ryle, I mentioned a few moments ago, says this, If a man has learned to feel and acknowledge his sinfulness, 
he has great reason to thank God. It is a real symptom of health in the inward man. If a mighty token, it is a mighty token for good. To know our spiritual disease is one step towards a cure. To feel bad and wicked and hell-deserving is the first beginning of being really good. What though we feel ashamed and confounded at the sight of our own transgressions? What though we are humble to the dust and cry, Lord, I am vile, Lord, I am the very chief of sinners? It is better a thousand times to have these feelings and to be miserable under them than to have no feelings at all. Anything is better than a dead conscience and a cold heart and a prayerless tongue. If we have learned to feel and confess sin, we may well thank God and take courage. Whence came those feelings? Who told you that you were a guilty sinner? What moved you to begin acknowledging your transgressions? How was it that you first found sin a burden and longed to be set free from it? These feelings do not come from a man's natural heart. The devil does not teach such lessons. The schools of this world have no power to impart them. These feelings come down from above. They are the precious gift of God, the Holy Spirit. It is his special office to convince of sin. The man who has really learned to feel and confess his sins has learned that which millions never learn, and for one of which millions die in their sins and are lost to all eternity. Thirdly, I've said it. Now I'm underlining it. Whether just now coming to Christ or in the ongoing Christian life, it is very important that you know within your heart, realize and get a grip on the fact that there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. God who became flesh and came into this world, obeyed the law, went to the cross. He is the only mediator and there is no other. We must show courtesy to others, but the minister of the gospel and the Christian must say, there is only one God and it is the triune God of the Bible, only one true and living God, and that Jesus Christ exclusively is the Savior of sinners. There is no other. That Allah is not God. That Jesus Christ is the only way that you can know the true and the living God. He is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so he's the only way, the only one through whom sins can be forgiven. And you can have a relationship with God. And so I ask you, do you know him? Have you come to him? Have you trusted him? Do you know God through the mediation of Jesus Christ? And Christian, this week we have sinned unhappily before this day is out, perhaps before this service is out. In our minds, in our hearts, we will sin. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you believe that? Do you live in that reality? I close with this. A South Sea Islander long time ago came to faith in Christ, and he put his coming to Christ in this way. He said, I saw an immense mountain with precipitous sides up which I endeavored to climb. 
But when I had attained a considerable height, I lost my hold and fell to the bottom. Exhausted with perplexity and fatigue, I went to a distance and sat down to weep. And while weeping, I saw a drop of blood fall upon the mountain, and in a moment it was dissolved. He was asked by the missionary, what does this mean? He answered, that mountain was my sins, and that drop which fell upon it was one drop of the precious blood of Jesus, by which the mountain of my guilt was melted away. And God's people said, Amen.